Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, here with my co-host, Fortune Senior Editor, and the amazing Ellen McGirt. Ellen? Hi, Alan. I love that intro. (laughs) I'll keep using it as long as you keep loving it. Thank you so very much. It's great to be back. Ellen, our guest today is Kathy Engelbert. She's the commissioner of the WNBA, but I became good friends with her when she was CEO of Deloitte, the first female CEO of Deloitte. She sure was. And, you know, she was such a vital member of two Fortune executive communities, Most Powerful Women and the CEO Initiative. So when she left, it really felt like a major absence. And for me, who covers race and inclusion, she'd been out front on so many vital issues. Not only did she declare it a priority, she made real systemic changes that actually worked. So I'm glad that she's back. Agree with all of that. And she's very happy to be at the WNBA. But live sports, as you know, has been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic uh, in all sorts of ways. And that was the first thing that I wanted to talk to Kathy about when we spoke. You've had a pretty big month. You conducted the first virtual draft of the WNBA from your home there, from this office you're in right now. Yeah. So, you know, about uh, right after the crisis became apparent and sports started to shut down, live sports as well as businesses, the economy overall, we had to make a decision, have the draft, not have the draft, have it virtually. So we did decide to move to a virtual draft and, you know, lo and behold, had it from, you know, a room in my home and set up a makeshift studio and used everything from a sweater drying rack to hang the jerseys that I would show for each draft (laughs) pick to using paint tape to mark where I was putting tripods and lights and devices that would stream me into ESPN and I would get a stream from ESPN. So it was all very interesting, but we pulled it off. And you didn't just pull it off. You got the biggest audience you've had in 16 (laughs) years. You may never leave your home again. You you can do it from right there. My daughter has now affectionately said whenever we're on any calls, live from the bookshelf, because we had two bookshelves in these rooms that we moved together. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was different. Um, You know, we wanted to make moments. We wanted to connect with those draftees and prospects whose dreams, quite frankly, were fulfilled by being drafted into a professional sports league. And we didn't want to leave that untapped. And especially during this time where, you know, everyone's missing live sports, there's no doubt about it. Kathy, what's the WNBA going to do this fall? Let us in on the plan. So there's a variety of things, scenarios we're looking at, you know, bringing our players to a single site, multiple sites, back in their arenas, fans, no fans, how that would work. Do we have some questions that have to be answered in order for us to start the season. So obviously sufficient quantities of rapid testing and PPE available and not to jump any lines, but available because they're available to everyone. Government restrictions that don't preclude putting on live sports, even without fans. Obviously, what are the protocols on the logistics of basketball, injuries, illness, financial impacts of all of this? So it's quite a Rubik's Cube, I call it right now. But can it work without crowds? Do you have to have crowds to make the sport work? 
Yeah, I think every sport is evaluating that for their sport. I think until we have significant advances on antiviral or a vaccine, I think, you know, mass gatherings of any large proportions are not going to be recommended and we won't do anything until it's medically advisable and feasible. So I think sports is going to, if it's going to come back this summer into the fall, it's going to have to come back without fan. I think with every crisis, Alan, and you've seen it in prior crises that were more financially driven, we need to look at the opportunity in this crisis. And I think there is an opportunity to engage fans in a different way if they're home watching on their devices or their television sets. And how do you engage a fan at home? And that was something we were looking at anyway, because we were trying to broaden our fan base for the WNBA. And it wasn't always a fan in the seat. It was a fan anywhere where they're, again, consuming live sports. So, you know, lots of different ways to think about how do you engage a fan at home now? Because even if mass gatherings start up, which fans aren't going to come back into the arenas initially because they view it as too risky. Yeah, well, you did that with your draft. You had engagement from home. So you see that as kind of a silver lining to this, that you're going to be able to think and focus more on virtual interaction? Yeah, virtual and digital interaction. And then once you get a fan used to going to an app and digitally engaging, whether it's a tap to clap or tap to cheer or pick what music you want played in the arena or different angles and aspects of how you could see this playing out, you could actually have a gamification on an app in front of you while the game's going on. So you interact with the fan in a different way. And then you get data, you get data from your fans, and then you know what you can do with data to drive a better fan experience. And whether we end up back with mass gatherings in arena or not, you have a different level set of data that you can work with to engage your fan more longer term on merchandise, on things, again, that you didn't really integrate the data around. So I do see some opportunity, but there's enormous challenge in this as well. What's your timetable for sorting all this out? There's no, like people are saying, data, not dates. It's so true in sports. It's about evaluating all the data that's changing every day. So I think we're looking, obviously, you know, at best case scenario by midsummer. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte U.S., which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, there's a tremendous amount of fear out there at a time like this. And the normal tendency for people faced with fear is to either freeze or to panic. How do leaders deal with those conflicting impulses? It's essential to maintain the trust of your people and your external stakeholders. You have to demonstrate in a circumstance like this that health comes first. And you have to demonstrate that whatever message you're delivering is credible and grounded in the real facts. It's okay to say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. People don't expect us as CEOs to have a crystal ball. They do expect us though to deliver straight talk that enables everyone to understand how this could play out and how each of those paths could affect both the company and them individually. And it really is important to have a compelling vision for the future that's inspiring, but doesn't appear to paint over the difficult present circumstances. You have to acknowledge and own how challenging the current circumstances are to earn the right to speak to a more optimistic future in a way that instills confidence. Good advice, Joe, thanks. Great thoughts as always. Wonderful to be with you, Alan. Welcome back to Leadership Next. 
Kathy Engelbert was tapped to lead the WNBA almost exactly one year ago. She was the first to be given the title of commissioner. Her predecessors had all been called president. And that was just the first of many changes that have happened under her watch. This is a landmark day for all women. The WNBA reached an agreement with the players on a new collective bargaining agreement. This is the first time the average base salary for players will exceed six figures. I know a lot of people talk about the salary, but there's also wins with player experience, player health and well-being. So it's a holistic CBA. The players union didn't negotiate for the right now the deal that they needed to make them more money as individuals. No, they struck a deal that was to lay the foundation for WNBA players 5, 10, 20 years from now. They were thinking ahead of what that league might look like in a couple of decades. It's pretty remarkable. One of the things you've done in your first year, Kathy, is substantially improve pay and benefits for the women who are playing in this league but it's still, there's still a huge gap between what they make and what the men make. I mean, you're talking six figures instead of seven and eight figures. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think when I came in, and actually on the night of draft, I was nine months in the job. I was announced last May, but started in July. And, you know, when you're in the middle of a transformation, which is what we're in the middle of for the WNBA, you know, to triple the top pay to over half a million but to invest more holistically, and I think women do have different needs in family planning and maternity benefits and child care and travel conditions and off-season employment to prepare them for their post-basketball life. I mean, pretty proud of what we did there around being progressive and groundbreaking, but that would have never been possible had I not been in the role for those few months of the last season. And I did a 12-city tour because one thing coming in from long career in business is, you know, I didn't, I, I played sports at a division one college level, but I didn't know a lot about the operations in arena and round arena, the players, I had no relationships. And so, you know, people ask me all the time, what was the transition like from Deloitte into the WNBA? And I said, like, there were so many similarities. I ran a people first agenda at Deloitte. Now we're running a player first agenda. I took a 12 city tour and I listened to all the stakeholders, the media, number one, the fans is number one, the owners, the GMs, the basketball people, the obviously front office people. And it was pretty fascinating, the similarities to big business, because what I figured out very quickly is sports is big business. And then as soon as we were done the season, we went on to the collective bargaining agreement negotiations. And they were really hard, really proud of the players for their maturity and their negotiation. And when you're running a player first agenda as the key pillar of your strategy, I'm pretty proud of the outcome we came to. And we don't, you know, we're not striving right now for comparison to a men's league that's been around 74 years. We'd be tipping off our 20 fourth year this summer. And, you know, when you look at the NBA or any other sports league, 40 years into the NBA, they were on tape delay. They didn't have big television deals. But what they had and what burgeoned out of the 40th year was a big rivalry between Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. And I've been a big studier of that history and how that put them on the map, followed by Michael Jordan. And you see the the docuseries right now on The Last Dance. <laughs> Did you, ha- you have those players in the league now, you think? The, the Larry Birds, the Michael Jordans? Yep, we have some really star veteran players like Sue Bird, Diana Taurasi, Brittany Griner, Brianna Stewart. And now we have a phenomenal player and a whole great rookie class coming in. But Sabrina Ionescu, who was the first pick in our draft, will play for in the biggest city, New York City. So we've got some real momentum. But again, we were at the beginning of a two-year or so transformation when this COVID-19 situation hit. So, I mean, I think it is important to continue to invest in that momentum, uh, even in the middle of a crisis. 
Kathy, I want to go back a few years here because you mentioned as you were talking about being a Division I college player yourself. That obviously had something to do with how you got where you are. Uh, can you tell us something about that? Yeah, I played, actually was recruited for lacrosse to college, and then basketball was a walk-on because I had had a pretty good high school career and ended up playing for Muffet McGraw, who's now a Naismith Hall of Fame coach, just announced her retirement after coaching for 40 years, the 33 years at Notre Dame, and she had coached me at Lehigh, a small engineering school in Pennsylvania. So yeah, I mean, it was all about competitiveness. I'm one of eight kids, five brothers really competitive background. We fought for everything from cereal to Pop-Tarts <laughs> to the parents' time. My father died when I was young, right out of college. I just started my career at Deloitte. So, I mean, you think of back at how your leadership style is shaped and certainly being from that big family, losing my dad young, and then ultimately, you know, going on to be the CEO of Deloitte has really set me on this path to say I wanted to do something different with a women's leadership platform and something I had a passion for. My dad played big time college basketball. He was actually drafted, Alan, by the Detroit Pistons in 1957. Wow. So that's a, a little known fact that I didn't even really focus on until I became the commissioner of the WNBA. And so, you know, it was all that competitiveness growing up in a very male-dominated family, went to a male-dominated university, entered a male-dominated profession called at the time the accounting consulting profession, which has grown in the ranks of women, certainly, but certainly a big part of what formed it. I really want to talk about that because you occupy a pretty small niche, too small, actually. I mean, we know only a, a little over 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. Uh, it can't have been easy for you to get there. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, for me, it was a bit of competitiveness. It was hard work, you know, and it definitely was, I would say, I took some risks and they may not sound like big risks at the time, but moving into a, get a niche in derivative and financial instruments. I then went into, when I had my kids, I wanted to I raised my hand and said, I want to serve the pharmaceutical and life sciences industry because I lived in New Jersey and I knew I wouldn't have to move for a period of time when my kids were at that young age and I didn't have to travel a ton. And I was so blessed to be at Deloitte too, which had this back in 1993, this CEO, Mike Cook was his name, who had a couple daughters who were joining the workforce, not at the firm, but he was saying, would they have equal opportunity to rise and become me, meaning yeah. a CEO, or even become a leader or a partner in the firm? And he realized that wasn't the culture that was being built at the time. And he really invested in not just the advancement of women, but the retention of women, because at the time, the retention was very different when women hit their 30s than it was for men. But with that experience in your pocket, you know, with that understanding of what you had to do, how do we fix this? I mean, it can't be right that only 5% of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are women. The right answer has to be a significantly higher percentage. What do we have to do to make that happen? Yeah, and I'm a little more of an optimist on this because I see feeder positions into the CEO really emerging for roles for women, whether it's the general counsel, and I think 40% of general counsels of corporate America are women, the CFO role, making more women presidents and running P&Ls, which has always been the knock on women, including me as I was rising. Well, she never ran a P&L. So I think that coupled with advocates or sponsors, if you had one person in the organization that's sponsoring you and they're the ones that kind of subtly brought opportunities to you behind the scenes to say, you should do this because it checked a box that they saw that you had a development need on and, and not enough men who are in those power positions in companies are 
sponsoring and advocating for those women without, again, some companies who are putting in quotas and things, which I don't believe in, but just a, a culture of advocacy and sponsorship. Okay, I wanted to take a minute to come back to you here, Ellen. You heard what Kathy said about elevating more women to Fortune 500 CEOs. What's your take on why that isn't happening? Well, you know, I've got four things. As you know, I've been noodling on this for quite a while. And I think we need to start listening to women. I mean, really ask them what they need to succeed, knowing that it's different for everyone. For example, a 25-year-old Latina individual contributor may be facing different barriers and concerns than a 40-year-old Black executive, different still from women who are veterans working with disabilities, or that may be feeling vulnerable now like so many Asian American or Muslim women. And you know, you've heard this from me before. I would also say focus on first-time leaders. They're my passion, and this is where we lose so much promising talent across the board for everybody. And I'm feeling like if you can find out why, you'll have an instant inclusion breakthrough. I'm a big fan of the equity audit. Where are the pay disparities? Who's getting passed over for promotions? You can't fix anything if you don't know who's being left behind. And I feel like it's time to rethink central casting. What does a CEO actually look like? What past experiences have they had? What expertise? If we can reimagine what a successful leader who, like Kathy, for example, didn't have P&L experience or didn't have an overseas assignment is, then it can change the way you help people develop along the way. So, Alan, I'm, I'm curious at what you have seen from our MPW and CEOI communities that's inspiring you lately. What my four tips were pretty much what I learned from my reporting with them, except for one takeaway, is that I don't think anything works without total buy-in from the top. Yeah, You have to have your equity experts inside the bubble. I'm a natural rabble-rouser, but there's no other way that cultural change will work. What, what do you think? Yeah, the, I agree. And the good news, Ellen, is that I see it happening at the top in more and more cases. I mean, at the extreme, you think about somebody like Mark Benioff, who really made it an issue to deal with pay equity, leadership problems, et cetera. But even uh, uh, look at Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan and what he has done to put women in top positions within that bank. I think there's more and more focus on it at, a, at the top. And I do think there is progress. I think the people at the top are also frustrated, as are you, as am I, at the slow pace of that progress. But things are happening. I think you're right. I am worried, though. The pressure on women has been bonkers working from home. I remember a couple of CEOI meetings ago where we were wondering if this was going to be a breakthrough. Now I'm not so sure. I'll give you one example. I read a story that found that women academics with kids were now submitting fewer papers and doing less prestigious work while male academics with kids were submitting more. So the, the work-life balance, taking care of kids and the house and older relatives and people who are vulnerable really seems like we might be losing some ground right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, although I did hear, if you want the silver lining to that story. I do. I did hear one of our CEOs say that it's making everybody more aware of those pressures because we're all participating in it. You know, we're all at home. We're all taking care of seniors. We're all taking care of children. And there's a greater awareness across the board of the pressures that that puts people under. So let's hope that that leads to some progress. But Ellen, really the big picture here is that what I hear across the board from CEOs that is that in today's economy, you really have to be focused on your talent. You have to be focused on your employees because they create value for you. And that was the last thing that I talked to Kathy Engelbert about. Kathy, the premise of this podcast is that the rules of running big companies like Deloitte 
have changed in the last few years. Uh, We talk a lot here about stakeholder capitalism and what that means, how you have a responsibility not just to shareholders, but employees, customers, the communities they live in, society at large. You at Deloitte had a unique opportunity to watch this evolution, not just because you were leading one of these companies, but also because you were talking with, consulting with the other people who were leading big companies. How do you view the change that's happened over the last five years? Yeah, I think it's been, especially on what I'll say in my years as the CEO of Deloitte, like the first two years, I spent no time on responding to employee activism. And in the last 18 months, up until last year when I left that position, I spent a lot of time thinking about employee activism and how that impacted the culture we were building. And so I think it's really important that leaders today stay in touch with either, if it's a consumer business, how the consumer activism is evolving, how the employee activism is evolving, how, you know, you saw what the Business Roundtable did, did, and I was part of the Business Roundtable till last June, and really thinking about what is the purpose of a corporation. And as you know, Alan, you and I were in Davos many years talking at CEO dinners about purpose-driven corporations. And we all thought, yeah, we're very purpose-driven. We do a lot in our communities. And bringing it a little bit over to the WNBA, the one thing I've been so impressed with, these WNBA players, now we only have 12 teams, 144 players, but there's social impact and social activism. And we had one of the best players in the league, former MVP, take a year off to go work on prison reform. Wow. I mean, now it's a must. We must have that social platform because of our players. That's super important, right? Because when you're dealing with talent, whether it's the kind of talent you were hiring at Deloitte or the kind of talent you're dealing with now in the WNBA, you have to pay attention to what they want. Yeah, and it's exactly what you said. It's it's an evolution. And it quite frankly was a little bit of an aha moment for me when employees, you know, at companies were walking out, were stepping up, were talking about what they wanted the culture to be. And so I think the boldness and courage that companies and those that kind of came into this crisis with not just a strong balance sheet, but also a strong culture on the balance sheet are the ones I think that are really going to do well afterwards. Because as you know, Alan, a crisis tends to accelerate or deepen issues that existed before the crisis. So I think the stronger you were culturally coming into this, the stronger you'll be coming out of it on this culture issue. Well, let's stick with that for a minute, because I think that is the big question. I mean, I always wondered when we were having those conversations in Davos and other places, I always wondered, is this a good time problem? I mean, the unemployment was very low. Companies like yours had to compete madly for the talent. And so everybody was catering to the talent. We now have 30 million people in the U.S. who have applied for unemployment insurance. Labor is not tight anymore, and companies have to focus on their bottom line because they're hemorrhaging cash. Does that mean that all this attention to social impact is going to dissipate? I hope not. I think that's part of the balancing act and the choices I talked about. Whenever you spend discretionary dollars or time or resources on something, you do worry when you get in the middle of a crisis that those kind of things go to the wayside. I worry about that. And I talked about this a year before this crisis around diversity inclusion initiatives, when if there was an economic downturn of some sort, those are the first dollars to go to the back burner. But I think ultimately, you know, because of the unemployment, because of as we think about the bottom line and is that bottom line 
that was we were looking at the triple bottom line that included, you know, the cultural aspect of social and climate change and all the other things companies were investing in. I hope as we think about balancing this that we don't leave some of those things that might have been viewed as critical before but discretionary now to the back burner. I hope you are right. Uh, Kathy Engelbert, thank you so much for spending time with us on Leadership Next. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Stay safe. Yeah, and good luck with the season. We're going to be watching closely. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. Hey, Leadership Next listeners. There's more C-suite insight available now at the all-new Fortune. You'll find expert curation, exclusive videos, and clear analysis on topics ranging from AI to digital health. Subscriptions start at less than a dollar a week. Visit fortune.com slash subscribe and discover why it pays to know.